Welcome from St. Philip United Methodist Church as we bring you our latest message, this one entitled Loving God, based on Romans 8, 26 through 39. The next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this wonderful promise that we find in God's Word, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But before we get into this, let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, which woke us up this morning and allowed us to see another day. We thank you for being able to bring us peace, even in these turbulent times. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Fill us with your hope, your joy, and your peace. Father, we love you, and we give you praise, for you alone are worthy. May you continue to strengthen us for whatever lies ahead, and keep us covered with the precious blood of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading, as I said, comes from Romans 8.26. I'm just going to be reading, uh, I'm sorry, it's Romans 8.26-39. through 39. Today I'm just going to be reading Romans 8, 28 through 32. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined. He also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word at this time. Well, today we do come to one of the most loved promises and most popular promises in all the Bible, Romans 8:28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Perhaps more than any other promise in the Bible, this verse has helped people to trust God through experiences that seemed utterly pointless and painful and evil. People have held fast to the all things and believed the word of God. This too, this terrible thing, this seemingly pointless thing, will turn out for my good. Now, I must say that I have in my life lived through this promise many, many times. I've experienced tragedy being turned into blessing, the meanness of others turned to blessing for me and my family, and what looked like dead ends to turn into catapults to success. I can attest to the Lord's faithfulness in this promise, and I want to spend this Sunday and the next two helping you to understand it and to embrace it in your own life. Today, I want to focus not on the promise itself, 
but what is it that makes a person a beneficiary of this promise? I want us to answer the question, how can I know this promise is for me? Because you see, this promise is not for every person. The first thing that we see today is that all things don't work together for good for everyone. The promise that God will turn all things for good isn't true in everybody's case. Now, there are two things that uh, need to be true for this promise to apply to you. One is that you love God, and the other is that you're called according to His purpose. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. First of all, to those who love God, and next, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul says, in effect, that if you don't love God, you can't claim this promise. If you're not called according to His purpose, you can't claim this promise. Or to put it another way, for the person who does not love God and is not called according to His purpose, final optimism is foolish and it's out of place. Pessimism is exactly the right state of mind for one who does not love God and is not called according to his purpose. Things are not going to work out good for their good, but for their harm. Romans 2.5 describes the way this person's experience affects his future. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, the experiences this person walks through don't turn out for good. They turn out for wrath. The pleasant things that he or she does not thank God for or make a means of worship will condemn him or her someday. The painful things that they walk through without trusting God's help will store up wrath for the last day. They may look poor or they may look prosperous, but if they don't love God and are not called according to God's purpose, all their experiences are not leading to good, but to eternal misery. Now, that is not the way we want it to be in our lives, is it? We want to hear this promise as ours. We want to know that all things are working together for our good, not for our condemnation. So, what has to be true of us for this to happen? First, Paul says that we must be people who love God. In the original text, this is the first thing in the verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So, what does he mean by loving God? First, he does not mean that you go in and out of loving God. And if you have a bad experience when you are loving God, it turns out for your good. And if you have a bad experience when you're not loving God, it turns out for bad. We know it doesn't mean that because he clarifies those who love God with the description at the end of the verse, those who are called according to God's purpose. Now this calling is not something that happens over and over. It is the once-for-all work of God to call me or to call you 
from death to life, from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to the power of God, and from enmity toward God to loving God. The calling into love and faith is once and for all, and so love for God is the mark of a truly called person all the time. Of course, our love for God has its up and downs, just like every other love relationship we have. But in those who are called, love for God is what defines them. It's the abiding condition of their hearts, whether strong or weak. And so Paul is not saying all things work for the good of Christians some of the time, that is when their love for God is strong, and all things don't work together for good for Christians some of the time, that is when their love for God is weak. He is saying that for Christians, for the called, for those whose hearts have been brought from enmity to love for God, all things work together for good all the time. So what does it mean to love God? How can you know if you're in this number? Well, I want to clarify this by going over, first of all, three things that the love of God is not. First, loving God is not meeting his needs. You see, the way we love humans is different from the way we love God. In Acts 17.25, Paul says, He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You see, God is radically different from us. He is the source of all things, and he has no needs. He cannot be helped. He cannot be improved. There are no defects to reverse or deficiencies to supply. We cannot love him by supplying his needs because he doesn't have any needs. And I'm always amazed when people think that God needs their help. It reminds me of a rancher who was showing his pastor his state-of-the-art, highly efficient, beautiful uh, ranch. And the pastor said, the Lord has surely blessed you with this wonderful place. And the rancher replied, well, you know, preacher, when I first showed up and the Lord had it all by himself, it was nothing but scrub brush and rattlesnakes. Now, the rancher in this story, as far as I'm concerned, is the epitome of someone who does not love the Lord. He has failed to see all the resources and abilities that the Lord has blessed him with that enabled him to turn a barren waste into a wondrous place. You see, amazingly, the essence of our love for God must be an experience of receiving. It has to be. There's nothing else. That leads to the second thing that the love of God is not. Loving God is not, in its essence, love for his gifts. Gifts like help, resources, blessings, forgiveness, justification, escape from hell, resurrection to a pain-free life, and I could go on and on with all the blessings that he has for us. Of course, if we love God, we will cherish these gifts and we'll be thankful for them because we would not have God without them. 
But loving God is treasuring God himself revealed in his gifts and is treasuring uh, God himself beyond his gifts. It's treasuring God beyond his gifts. His gifts are precious to the degree that they bring us to God and show us more of God. When you love God, God is central in your affections, not his gifts. Let me repeat that. God is central in your affection. His gifts are secondary. Here's the third thing that the love of God is not. Loving God is not the things that love for God prompts you to do. Love for God may prompt you to leave mother and father and forsake all uh, in order to declare his glory among the nations. But leaving mother and father and forsaking all are not the essence of love. They are the fruit of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, this does not mean keeping his commandments is love. It comes forth from our love for him. It means love is the kind of heart that prompts you to keep his commandments. In John 21, 15 through 17, Jesus illustrates this connection when he asks Simon Peter three times, do you love me? When Peter says, yes, Jesus doesn't, well, Jesus doesn't say, good, that must mean that you're obeying my commandments because obeying my commandments is love. No, he says, feed my sheep. In other words, if you love me, act like it. My, love my flock and feed them. Feeding sheep is the fruit of loving Jesus, you see. In other words, what I'm saying is that love for God is a matter of the heart's esteem for God before it produces anything else. It's not any of the outward peripherals. It comes before that. It's something internal and it involves spiritual emotions. It is not, in essence, a deliberated choice or a deed. It's more like a reflex of the heart to the perfection of God revealed especially in Jesus. If you equate the deeds of love with the essence of love, you're going to produce hypocrites, people who imitate the deeds and claim to love God when their hearts are far from him. Now, if you equate love for God with love for his gifts, again, you produce hypocrites, people who are very glad to feel forgiven and declared righteous and delivered from hell and heaven bound, but have no pleasure in God himself. They don't love God. They just don't want to have bad guilt feelings or to go to hell. As you can see, we can be misled or mistaken in our understanding of what loving God is. If you're now wondering, well then, what is love for God? Here it is. Loving God is desiring God himself beyond his gifts. It's desiring the very presence of God. Loving God is treasuring God himself 
beyond his gifts. As the psalmist said, thy loving kindness is better than life. Love for God is delighting in God himself beyond his gifts. Love for God is being satisfied in God himself beyond his gifts. Love for God is cherishing, holding dear God himself beyond his gifts. Love for God is savoring God himself beyond his gifts. All these words are grasping for that essential response of the heart to the revelation of the glory of God, especially in Christ through the gospel. It is a glad reflex of the heart to all that God is for us very personally in Jesus. But it's deeper than that. I'm reminded of a little story of the story of a little girl who was uh, trailing around after her grandfather while he was out working in the yard, and she kept trying to talk to him, and he just uh, uh, just was giving her short answers and going on back to what he was doing. And so finally, Grandpa turns around, and he digs into his pocket. He pulls out a $20 bill. He says, Here, why don't you take this and go buy something with it? And the little girl looked at that $20 bill. And then she looked up at her grandfather and she said, Grandpa, I don't want your money. I want you. She was wanting her grandpa to spend time with her, to be with her, to talk to her, to walk with her, not just have her trudging along. She wanted him. Well, I think that uh, we need to understand that we can place ourselves in this story. And in many ways, we're the grandpa. You see, God has been pursuing us. He's been blessing us. He's been preparing to have a wonderful personal relationship with us. And many of us have been misled and been just doing things for him and keeping on about our own business. And it's like grandpa, it's like, uh, God is saying to you today, I don't want your gratitude. I want you. It's not your service that I want. It's you. It's not your praise I want. It's you. Now, I invite you right now to look through this promise and behold God himself in and through his promise because, you see, it is a loving promise. First, look at all that he has done in history to reveal himself, to make himself known, and look especially at Jesus Christ and the glory that he had before he came 
and the glory of his sacrificial coming and his servanthood and his suffering. Look at the mercy and wrath and justice of God mingled on the cross for utterly undeserving sinners like you and me. Look at the power and righteousness of God in raising Jesus from the dead. Look at new covenant promise-keeping faithfulness that pours out the Holy Spirit on sinful people. Look at the triumph of God's grace to change hostile God-neglectors into humble God-lovers. Look at God in all these ways. And if you do, I say that you will behold the God you are made for. Behold the fulfillment of all your desires. Behold the most satisfying treasure in the entire universe. And then when you see his glory and his worth, and when you treasure him, and you realize he has done all this so that you and he could just be together, the great I am and the little you are together, just loving each other, then the promise is yours. All things will work together for your good because you love God, and he's going to make sure that they do because he loves you. After hearing all of this, if what you say to me is, Pastor Joel, I don't feel like looking at God. I just want to watch television. I just want to be with my friends. I just want to eat and work in my house. I don't feel any desire to any desire to look for God. Then I respond with this. If there is any remnant of fear, if there is any shred of desire to desire, O oh, endangered sinner, use it to pray the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. O oh Lord, circumcise my heart, change my heart, to love you with all my heart and soul, so that I may live and all things may work together for my good. Have mercy upon me that I may love you. Amen. Some of you, as you have been listening to this message, you felt your heart strangely warmed with a love for God that you weren't even aware was there. And it's because you've been misled and you've been thinking that loving God is doing things for God or it's going through motions for God. It's uh, just uh, uh, singing songs for God or it's gathering in one place once a week for God. And you realize now that loving God is so much more than just doing the stuff. You hear him saying, I want you. I want you to be with me and I want to be with you. 
I've made a way to take care of all the things that you think are standing between me and you. I did it a long time ago. And I've been just chasing after you saying, I don't want all this stuff. I want you. And if you hear him saying that today, if you hear his call of love and you want to respond to it and be his, pray this prayer with me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I realize now that you have been trying to get my attention because you love me. And I've been feeling unlovable and unloved while I've been being loved all along. Forgive me, Lord, for not receiving your love before now. Thank you, Lord, that you died on the cross for my sins so that they could be swept out of the way by your precious blood and I could just stand and be righteous and washed and cleansed and pure before you and behold you and your loveliness and your beauty as you behold me in a loveliness and a beauty that you have given me that didn't even come from me. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. And as I give myself to you, I pray that you will give yourself to me so that I can be with you in the here and now, and you can be with me in the here and now. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Reside there. I want to live my rest of my life for you, and even more than that, with you, loving you. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for this. I receive it all now. In Jesus' name, amen. And Heavenly Father, for those who just prayed that prayer with me, I pray that you will just keep the promise of your Son, that you will love him, that he will love him, and that you will send your Holy Spirit upon them, and through the presence of your Holy Spirit in their life, that you will dwell in them, and they will be in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, and now, until next week, goodbye and God bless.